Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome, Marlo. Welcome to the web. How are we? Yes, it's Wednesday. We're back. Yes, thank you for joining us. This is Sam Talks Technology. And I'm really excited today because we're going to be talking about e-commerce and experiential marketing. And then possibly look at the future of online and e-commerce. Joining me in the studio today is my good friend Jane Dixon. Hello Jane. Hello, good afternoon Sam. Yes, and also co-hosting with me today is Deborah Collier. Hello Deborah. Hello Sam, glad to be back. Indeed. So here we are today. Um, Jane, I'm going to introduce you, but I was going to introduce you, I'm going to let you introduce yourself (laughs) actually, which is much more. Um, So who are you, what do you do and what's currently going on in your life? Um, Thanks, Sam. Um, So, Jane Dixon, I've worked in e-commerce, e-marketing and that kind of area for about 20 years. With some pretty big brands. Yes, so um, I've always worked for technology vendors, helping them, you know, support customers like House of Fraser, uh, Waterstones, Chanel. So working on digital marketing strategies, but mostly on the retention side. So how to keep your existing customers happy, engaged and putting the right content in front of them at the right time. And you've just started something very exciting and new, I think. Yes, yes. As a working mother and uh, having been in the industry for a long time, I thought it was about time that I went independently and set up my own agency. And what's that called? Come on, don't don't be shy. So that's Willow Ridge Digital. <laughs> Perfect. Deborah, hello and welcome back, as we said. How are you? I'm great, thank you. You? Uh, yes, very well, very well. I love doing this, so... <laughs> This you is, look like you do. You're know, always is, smiling, always laughing. Well, you know, what, what's wrong with doing this? This is perfect. Um, so, let's, for those who haven't heard you, who, who are you and what do you do? Um, well, I'm President, Chief Information Marketing Officer at Dig- Global Digital Skills um, Authority, the Certificate in Online Business. Okay. I'll, I'll try and break that down in my head. Um, okay, so here we are. We're going to really look at e-commerce. Now, everyone says, and this is the, you know, 24-minute, uh, 24-minute, uh, 24-hour, try that one, um, <laughs> breakdown, um, that, that the, the internet has killed the high street. That's, that's the standard answer to what's happening with the high street, what's happening online. Um, but... You have a different view of that. It's not dead, it's... I think it's changing, um, and it's changing in the same way that, you know, the the dynamics of of the high street have always been changing. Um, We've seen, uh, if you look at the balance between online and offline, online still only accounts for about 20% of retail sales in in, in the UK, Although that number is growing, if you look at the British Retail Consortium numbers, it's up 5% year on year this year, whereas um, footfall in stores in store is changing. But if you think about those that are surviving and thriving, what they've done is embrace that change and adapt. And you know, the, the division between online and offline is reducing and so they become becoming complementary. 
it's a multi-channel really absolutely absolutely using the store as a as um to really connect with the customer physically um to help them really experience the brand and that's why the focus is on um experience-based marketing so giving the customer um, letting them lift the brand giving them something exciting but still having bringing to bear the advantages of the online arena where you have all that data that you can use to drive communications at scale because obviously that's always been the challenge with in-store is is replication and scalability of enhancing that customer experience okay so the promise the promise of online let's say 10 years ago was always we're going to be able to do one-on-one targeting we're going to do you know it's not no longer mass marketing um what was the old expression you know if you give me 100 pounds i can tell you i couldn't tell you where 80 percent of that went but i can tell you at least it was spent you know it's, it's that unknown knowledge in the past of where your marketing dollar went to and now we should be able to be able to target well that was the promise the early days of online marketing was pretty much hit and miss i mean we had cpcs and we had you know banner ads and just hoping hit even modern day retargeting is pretty awful i know that i think if you look at you know the average um consumer journey before they purchase you know you might see an ad on facebook you might go and uh, look something up on on google you know you'll you might see a billboard you might see a tv ad you might have the apps popping your message before you ever, ever go near a product and i think actually the cha- some of those challenges from 10 years ago um attribution of marketing revenue to you know w- which bit of that journey really drove you to purchase those challenges still exist and the complexity of that is not simply the number of touches but the number of different data sources where that data sits in so you know connecting up your google adwords campaign with your facebook marketing connecting that with um you know your traditional retention based marketing understanding if somebody's purchased uh, something in store versus online traditionally those pots of data have sat in very different places and that's really the biggest challenge we still have today um i think some of the very traditional retailers and uh, the likes of waterstones and argos actually have quite a lot to still teach people today about how they've tackled those so, okay <clears throat> let's take a step back mm-hmm. so most of the offline world the high street was pretty much poor at marketing and you had the online behemoths turn up you know the amazons of the world um and and that started working and we i mean 80 percent of ad spend right now is through google and through facebook um but but crm the basic stuff that was there so you, you you started to talk about two brands there. Can we talk about the Argos example? Because mm-hmm. I think that's a really useful one where Argos catalogue, we all probably had one, didn't we? <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and lots of those tiny little pencils. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How many did you nick? <laughs> you, you, you flick through them and you go and you, you leave the page and then you went and picked them up. It was, it was pretty rudimentary, but that was what it was. Um, but what happened to Argos to make them... Uh, I guess much more 
relevant today. So talk us through that case study, maybe. I think that they were quite early adopters in terms of um, enhancing and optimising their web presence. Um, they invested in personalisation. Obviously, they've always been a long-tail retailer. And to bring that long-tail retail experience into the online world, it's got to be searchable. P- personalisation also had to be um, an absolute absolutely critical factor but also if you think about the bricks and mortar aspect to it they always had that those um, delivery mechanisms the collection mechanisms were there which is why ultimately you know if you think about Sainsbury's buying them out a couple of years ago it's what made them so attractive what's so exciting because they had that rapid turnaround order online pick up in store they've been doing that for a very long time um, and now of course they're going from strength to strength they they connected up with Google Google Home Shopping Service last year. And um, yeah, so I think what? So voice, for, voice, for voice enabling? Yeah, for Google voice Home. enabling. Google okay. Home. I haven't, I haven't got a Google Home, so I uh, wouldn't know that. Yeah, we I, have one of each, you see. We're, 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 we're a bit, uh, yeah, we're, we're not entirely committed to Alexa. We've doubled. Oh, uh, no. I'm, I'm only a one woman man. I don't like two <laughs> women at the same time. Although in the studio we have two ladies here. Um, <laughs> but I am a one woman man. At least that, while Jill's listening. Um, so, um, okay. So, but Argus. So they went multi-channel. They've gone offline, online. They also they they did a deal with a, a delivery service that gave you a one-hour delivery, didn't they? So yes, I'm not I'm not so familiar with that aspect of the service, but you can certainly, you know, you can go and pick up in store um, within a one-hour uh, time. I think one of the things that they did very well um, is also understanding where stock was available to pick up in your vicinity and they invested in that a very long time ago um, they invested in understanding how uh, customers experienced their websites as well so very a huge focus on the web analytics side and understanding what the customer journey was and optimising that Yeah I mean John Lewis I remember bought an online e-commerce company in order to get their online capability yes. going so you can see how I guess what you call the older traditional retailers bought younger, faster, young companies and merged together to get that head start above. Um, The other example that you were talking about was Waterstones. Yes. So I think they were a really interesting case. So I worked with them in helping bring, um, bringing together their traditional loyalty schemes. So they've got one of the oldest loyalty schemes in the country. So if you have a Waterstones rewards card, um, then that that is one of the oldest schemes. So obviously Boots is, is one of the most well known um, and it's got a very high um, usage rate as well so one in five swipes um, will be accompanied by the card so they the key reason for that is to understand how customers shop both in uh, in store and online particularly for um, booksellers you know if you have a favorite author you think then um, you know they may not bring out a book um, more than once in a year it might be a couple of years in in between so understanding purchase patterns and consumer behavior has to be looked at both cross channel and over a number of years as well so that was really important for waterstones to be able to understand that and bring all that purchase to get data together both from the online and offline um <clears throat> some really really interesting things that came out of that um i think Interestingly, what they then did was rather than try and use some of the good old-fashioned 
data modeling techniques like uh, recency, frequency, and monetary value, RFM modeling to to their shopper behavior. They actually thought about the shopper experience in store. Um, so rather than endlessly targeting customers with emails, they then focused on what does a customer do when they go into a bookshop? Well, first of all, they want to buy from people who are knowledgeable about the products. Booksellers are passionate about the books that they sell. So they built on that. So the things like um, handwritten card slips, you know, really, really important, making sure that it was welcoming for families and kids, putting a coffee shop in there. Yeah, we used to use That's the- experiential marketing as, in my it, as far as I understand it. Yeah, we used to use the um, <clears throat> fifth floor of Waterstones um, for startup events. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but more importantly, you know, now you can go and sign up for um, talks by authors. You know, it's, it's they, they open it up in the evenings very frequently for, for their own um, customer base. And I think that that's a really successful approach and one where it's making um, the shopping experience more like... Um, and an entertainment experience but it but it's relevant to the brand that's a trend um that's not only successful now but we'll see more of in the future yeah i mean i, I wish waterstones all the best but i do worry for them because um yeah. i wouldn't worry too much they've been profitable for three years and then th- three of the last years they've turned a profit no that's great and and, and congratulations because strangely amazon's closed all 87 pop-up stores so amazon started going back from its traditional roots of being a book online only store so they they killed a lot of independent book resellers um then they became so successful and then they started opening up well 2017 2018 in the us pretty much all these bookstores and now they've just announced uh amazon announced 87 pop-up stores in the us will close by the end of the year that's 2019 and they'll revaluate their bricks and mortar strategy so clearly they don't agree with waterstones but that's where waterstones have always very um openly acknowledged they can't compete with the likes of amazon amazon is still very much price-led and and that's about you know having a massive range of books and at a very competitive price and being able to love them very quickly i don't think that experience replicates to a store because you'd have to have you know a store you know 20 stories high in order to to match and on match that experience um it, it physically however interestingly if you look at amazon go uh, the retail proposition then you do so where they've taken elements of that online experience and they're using it to really good effect so amazon go is not about um, books at all it's about food and making that experience as frictionless as possible so they then they they've abandoned the you know that particular product range and focusing on what's the, what are the key things that you get out of shopping online it's the immediacy of the of the experience what do you do when you want to buy food in and you're working in a city um you want to get in and out as quickly as possible that's what is the frictionless commerce side of it that they're focusing on yeah, with and, amazon and they're go. going to expand that because they're, they're opening an amazon go in london i'll be interested to go and try it yes um but but uh, you were saying earlier that the, what uh, I, well, I, well, I prompted you and you said and told me. So <laughs> they, they, no, and, and you had the knowledge. I just prompted you on something else. They, they, they'd cl- uh, 
California just banned the Amazon Go stores in uh, the USA temporarily. You said, you said the reason was? That, that's because of the, um, they see it as being um, prejudiced against those without access to credit cards because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not all that familiar with the, the financial systems in the US, but obviously if you don't have um, access to an online account, then you can't use Amazon Go. And that's the reason why they've banned Amazon Go in, in California as far as I understand it. But, but Whole Foods in America is, is the Marks and Spencers of here, is it? It's yeah, absolutely. Top, top if you, 10%. If you're, if you're living on a very restricted budget, you're not going to be shopping in, in Whole Foods. No, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, we'll see what happens there. Um, but going back to Waterstones, I mean, the, the, the one reason I, I, I'm also... I guess concern. Maybe I'm not a book reader. I don't know if you book read a lot, Deborah. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I don't. I'm. I. I read all. Well, I read. I hear audible books all the time. So I'm reading uh, Amy Webb's The Nine, um, which is brilliant. All about the top nine companies in AI. Love the book. Anyway, I digress. Um, I, I just wonder whether they can afford it because one of the challenges of the high street is business rates. Um, square footage and the cost of that and rentals i know from talking to my wife jillian who who works as a non-exec with numbers of companies one of their biggest challenges is they go into these long-term lease contracts with companies uh, with landlords and they can't get out of them so they're struggling with you know the whole concept of um they're they're on the high street they've got high-end costs even before they start selling yeah mm-hmm. it's particularly challenging for the s- small retailers yeah. and all kinds of small businesses well, are struggling as they're putting the rents up i know in my town <coughs> it's it's very challenging yeah and, and they, they, you know you end up with what i call the identical high street you know costa coffee starbucks mm. banks car phone warehouse whatever well i think um yeah the, the, that trend um to to um, ha- having identical high streets is is something that's inevitable when you need to, to have that sort of corporate entity in order to fund presence. I think what you'll see on the flip side of that is, again, much more focus on experience. If you think about the way in which um, consumers buy clothing, although you know there's a huge rise rise in those um lower end of the market um providers like boohoo you know the sort of very fast fashion low low ticket item yeah there's a credit of primark online um you will will yeah those guys are doing really well at the top end of the market you've then got um the store as an extremely important experience because you know that that sort of luxury shopping end um you'll you'll never be able to replicate truly online i I don't believe because you want to feel the 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 goods the quality of the fabric the cut of the the material so we see um retailers very high end so uh, companies like Farfetch and Chanel using um, the online store uh, the uh, sorry the offline store uh, offline store um, but blending in online elements so using augmented reality to to enable customers to shop a look to show an entire range so give me an example of what they do 
So uh, the Farfetch experimented with a complete augmented reality store last year. Um, I believe it was, it might be the year before. Um, and that's obviously very forward thinking. It's part of the brand experience as well. So, you know, they're kind of, it's quite elitist. Um, they've now got a tie up with Chanel where um, you'll be able to shop the range. So, so being able to not only see stuff that's been presented on a catwalk, but to be able to buy a complete look. Interestingly, we have more mid-market retailers. So, so Zara, for example, is also bringing out um, an augmented reality app, but you'll also be able to shop and buy the goods on the shop floor and walk out with them, a bit like the Amazon Go so, uh, experience. It, is, is, it, is the augmented reality experience that I go in and I, I, I physically see stuff and I touch stuff or I can put it on or it makes it look like I've put it on? What, what's the actual experience? So it's recommended... Um, I haven't actually had a chance to play with oh, okay. these apps myself, so I have, you'll have to forgive me. Um, from f- One of the techniques that retail marketers have always um, enjoyed is being able to shop the look. So um, curate, content curation, being able to uh, to show a complete outfit, the you know items that go with it. That's a very strong merchandising technique. One that Bowden has used to very good effect, both online and uh, in the catalogue for a very long time. So it's replicating that. You know, if you if you like that top and that colour, then we would recommend this, that, and the other. Um, and in fact, that curation of content and recommending products that go together, um, we're seeing whole businesses in the in the US and in the UK now. Now focusing on that so um dia and co in the us which is um uh, a clothing curation um uh, catalog based company so you give them your sizes your look um it's for for bigger women who tend to to struggle a little bit particularly shopping online and they will actually curate a selection of products for you to give you a complete look okay um so it's really interesting it's 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 about curating items that go together ultimately for the retailer it's about selling more products yes um, that's all it really is but it's giving them trying to do that um and give an experience to the customer of providing products that are relevant to them yeah so so we're beginning to see as you say with waterstones with argos and and various other brands are beginning to realize and understand what the mix means within high street offline online um are we going to see other brands starting to adopt this? Are there any other goods? So maybe let's start to look at experiential marketing. What good examples are there out there as case studies that we might be able to look at? I think there's some there's some really fun ones. If you think about the pure um, experiential, when we're just thinking about experiencing the brand. So um, some of the ones that I love, um, and there's quite a long-running one actually, Sprite Showers. Yes. So, so Sprite, the brand, they set up showers on beaches I have to say I've never heard of <laughs> if you have a look at the sprite showers no. so they look like giant um, uh, soft drink vending machines which you could stand under and, and get a, a shower I thought that was a really nice one but that's that's the you know we, we, it's just creating excitement it's creating buzz um, interestingly here in the UK we had um, Vans the, the trainer brand they, they created a, a skate park for, um, anybody could come along and use it so the house of vanscape park that was a really nice one um but if we start to think about the, the 
in the good old days, you know, marketers had uh, money to throw around and play and create cute experiences. That money's now got to work hard and therefore it's about tying up the data across channels. And I think when we look at it from that perspective, one of the things that Burger King has recently done um, is really interesting and exciting. It's quirky and experiential. So, so, let's, so, so before you go, so what have they done? Well, they did burn down the rivals. So they've got a, an augmented reality app which you pointed at their rivals' adverts and um, it sets fire within the app to, to, to their advert, to the rival. <laughs> adverts but obviously Burger King have got all that download data they know who who somebody is you know, they're connecting up with them and then can market to them on a follow-on basis so you've got the experiential and then you're into the more traditional marketing realm once you know who that individual is okay so we were talking earlier um when I first said, oh, okay, so, you know, if you look at what is experiential marketing, I was just looking up a definition of it. You know, it's marketing technique that creates experience between brands and consumers, experiential campaigns using activation, product sampling, immersive experience, stunts, events to bring brands to life and interact. And I just went, well, hang on, is that anything new? Because when I was at Netscape, we used to do stupid stunts, you know, um, you know, and do things. I mean, you know, and, and we would create, because we had such a li- limited budget compared to Microsoft, who was my competitor, we used to go and create, you know, an image, a picture of a stupid stunt, brand-related, then chuck that at every journalist we could find. Yeah. Uh, and that was our cheap marketing, right? And you said, and I said, well, isn't that just experiential marketing? And you said, there's a difference. What is the difference? Is it, it is experiential marketing. I think that's more into the realms of guerrilla marketing, was, which is exactly. Yeah, thank that's, you. That's, that's, it's exciting and it's fun, and I, you know, I love that. And I, but I think the, the difference now is it's bringing that so that it's very much customer focused. It's 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 focused on how the customer is experiencing the brand, and it's it's data led, and it connects all of those different channels in which the consumer um, or the end customer can actually. T- um, connect with the the business or the brand. So, um, some great examples of that. If we think about, um, there's a brand called Glossier in in the US. Um, they, they've, they've now come over here. So they sell makeup and perfume. They um, they produce it. It's a very quirky millennial brand, if you like to think about it in that way. Never thought about makeup <laughs> at all, personally, but there you go. No. But what's really interesting about that brand, and in fact, they have now achieved unicorn status, so they're valued over a billion, um, is, for me, is interesting because it's female-led, which is always exciting. Um, but also, they're using the shop floor to create content about the brand. So, the shop floor is not for selling as such, it's for experiencing the products. It's uh, very Instagrammable, so they have a big couch with the you know sort of dali-esque lips with a big red couch so lots of people taking photos lots of which is brilliant that is exactly what you want you want to go on and try but really interestingly their um, shop assistants are not sales people they are um, in-store editors they're called so what's happening is people sorry they're called what in-store editors or offline editors only a little bit uh, oh that is so millennial isn't yeah. it I, I, I can't be called a shop sales assistant well, anymore they, yeah I did read one article that said it was you know uh, decorated in millennial pink so it was a bit kind of 
you know. Um, but 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 what's what's interesting? This is where I think experience was going. Is you've got people writing about the um, you've got people on the shop floor talking to customers and then writing about that experience. That yes. feedback is then going into product design product and product marketing and their CRM strategy. So following up with people that have been into the store. The store is a place to experience the product, not even to buy it. You buy that offline. So, and that's what I think is interesting. Yeah, a friend of mine, Tara Hunt, who's going to be on the show in a few weeks' time, um, <clears throat> said, you know, marketeers have singularly focused in the past and we say the past five years ago on getting likes and follows and their metrics all about oh look i've got a million likes i've got a hundred followers on instagram or whatever it may be um and you go but what she said was the minute you turn off the tap the marketing budget tap suddenly all those followers go on to the next thing and the next thing because they're not entertained anymore. Yeah. They're not they're not being given any info. So she said, realistically, and I loved her video. There's, she has a great video on LinkedIn. She goes, it's not about attention. It's about relationships. Yeah. And fundamentally, that's what we're looking at here. Mm. Um, I was just reading here. There's a guy called Keith Ferrazzi wrote in 2009 in Information Age that we're transitioning into the relationship age. And I think that's probably been Absolutely. what experiential marketing is part of. Well, I, I see it so... Um you know, back in the days when we we saw the the um, rise of technology and things like games, for example. So there's a great case study in a book called Small Data, and it's a it's really interesting. So he does um, it's a chap who does ethnographic research for brands about what cus- what their customers love about the product. Now this is in back in the day of um, Nintendo Game Boys, etc., and Lego was really beginning to struggle. Um, you know, they were seeing their sales dip quite dramatically. And um, they, they commissioned this piece of research to see how they could regain their market share, regain, you know, the, the love of their customer base. What, what was it that, that would get them engaged again? And interestingly, he did a case study of a um, young lad in his early teens who was a Lego fanatic, but also a skateboarder. Yeah. And he what he noticed was that this, um, the the kid had a pair of sneakers that were worn down on one side and he said he just picked this up and he said well you know what's that all about he said because as a skateboarder that was his badge of honor it showed how much effort he had put into being a skateboarder and how long he'd been doing it um and lindstrom's recommendations to the board at lego was actually all of this data that says, um, you know, all kids are getting more engaged in um, online games and it should be dumbed down. Actually, the reverse is true. Um, that actually, if you want to make Lego successful, you make it more difficult. You actually make it tougher. You make it a badge of honour that you've built, you know, the Death Star, um, all, all of this kind. So, you know, if, if you have kids of your own and you've ever sat there on Christmas Day um, trying to put together a million pieces of Lego, you can... To build uh, you, a Death Star. <laughs> yes, you Falcon. can thank this guy. And, uh, and, and it's really interesting that it's that tiny bit of data. It's actually the small indicators in data that really give us the key the clues to what customers love and what they're responding to. Back in the days of email, when I was a, an email consultant, I would say if you ever want to 
target a group of interesting customers, go after those customers that want next day delivery because you can pretty much sell them anything. And lo and behold, <laughs> Amazon really? brought out Amazon Prime. Oh, That's right. what it, the whole business is about. If you if you if you if customers just want a thing and they want it now this minute, they're not price sensitive. They're, True. You know that. That's me. I don't <laughs> care. I really don't care. I wanted to. How soon? Want it and want it now I'm this waiting. minute. Yes. Yeah, and so Amazon built no, an entire business off the back of it. You're price sensitive, are you, Sorry? You're price sensitive. No, no, but I think um, there are different groups of audiences and some are more price sensitive than others and it also depends on the type of um, product that you have. And also the um, brand, um, brand loyalty is incredibly important. If you look at John Lewis, for example, they've always built their brand on quality and quality of service, and they have a wide range of products. Now, some of their products are sort of everyday prices. Some of them, you know, may be slightly higher, but they're offering extra. So they might be offering sort of an, another year's um, insurance. Or, um, But what's what's the interesting about John Lewis is that you know, they, they might be able to sell those products at a higher price, slightly higher price. I'm not saying that they do, but they might do because they've got the brand loyalty and they've built that. So customers identify and trust that brand. Yeah, I agree that they've got brand loyalty in the sense that, you know, even for me with a wife, um, we, we'll, we'll look at that as a trusted brand to go and check the price against. But they had to remove never knowingly unsold um, because they just couldn't match that price matching anymore. Not on the internet. They, they, <clears throat> they were getting absolutely hammered on that all the time. And actually, it's really interesting um, because the, they've invested very heavily in shop floor technology and connecting with customers. So um, an ex-colleague of mine, Sean O'Connor, runs the um, in-store experience. But So if you have the John Lewis app, that's where... I mean, I don't carry their... Uh, I carry as few cards around as possible. I have their loyalty I know, you're card the queen. On. You're like the queen. Never... <laughs> never has anything on her. It means you can get out and paying for stuff. So. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm I sure I owe you a few drinks by now. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, they, they, the, their loyalty card is in the app. So you just show the app. Everybody has the mobile phone with them. Um, you can look up anything. So you go to, and speak to anybody on the shop floor. They'll, they'll walk you through. They'll help you look up things on the phone, a bit like in an Apple store. So whilst they do have that brand loyalty, they haven't sat on their laurels and they are trying to make sure that they are there ahead of the game with the, the changing customer demands because in the same way as they can't commit to being the lowest priced item never knowingly undersold yeah. um, they also can't just rely on being nice to people they still yeah, and this is one of the first years they think but that their associates been, won't get paid their bonus I was going to say there has been research done though, against um, you know customers buying based on price and based on loyalty so the, the test showed that okay number one the number one reason that people will buy from an individual retailer was because of they had the better price but where customers were loyal to a particular brand and they felt safe and trusted that brand even if the price was slightly higher they would actually go with the one that they had used the most and they were more loyal to yeah and that that all comes down to branding so you and i jane we had a conversation um offline before and, and as i understand it you're you're very focused on conversion and analytics can well, you tell us more about that more about <coughs> excuse me um more about the whole crm thing so um it, i i think again back in the bad uh, in the well good old days bad old days i i used to work with retailers like uh 
um, Jules with John Lewis as well and and when they tried to understand how their customers uh, were buying from them they literally had a book you'd have you'd have a big thick wadge of paper your report of with RFM modeling and you know this customer segment has moved into and of course this came out three weeks after um, the end of the last month so it was already out of date um, but those approaches to you know how many how many items did each individual purchase how frequently are they purchased and how much do they spend th- th- those days are, are long gone um, I'm interested in uh, the overall life cycle, the lifetime customer value, and how uh, businesses can come to understand who who their customers are, who the valuable customers are, because somebody might be a valuable customer, but, 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 but buy very little, but they have great brand loyalty and they talk about the brand. So in the in the social arena. Um, when you have brand advocates, that's a dimension that's been traditionally missing from those conversations around conversion rates and, and value of a customer. Um, so it's adding in those extra dimensions is now uh, a really interesting challenge for most retailers and it's one that I'm, I'm helping them with. And going on with that to the sort of ambassadorial brand ambassadors and brands or and individuals that will advocate a brand that are not necessarily, I'm shopping this every single day, but actually I'm I will talk about this brand. What kind of things are you doing or are advising on? Um, that's so. I think there's lots of interesting conversations going on uh, there. You see brand ambassadors um, moving much more into the retail sphere. Um, if you think about um, retailing for toys, uh, you will have lots of unboxing videos. I didn't even know this was a They're thing. They're great fun, aren't they? It's just insane. And very impactful. Did you know that the, the number one earner on YouTube is a kid of eight? Yes, absolutely. And interestingly, <laughs> he's now actually selling the product. So uh, I can't yeah. remember the little guy's name over in the US. Um, but he's now actually setting up a shop. And that's one of the trends. So if you think about our brand ambassadors over here, in the UK Holly Holly Willoughby is now a walking retail shop I'm going to get it in Holly Willoughby I've got it in I've got it in right go on and one of us had to say tits at some point (laughs) there you go Ofcom's taking us off Anyway, get back on track. Could be worse. So, I mean, uh, Holly Willoughby um, uh, was reading... uh, (laughs) I mean, she has got a massive social following and... She uh, has got a massive social following, (laughs) yes. (laughs) All right, Sam. That's enough of that. Um, (laughs) Now now we really are straying into Alan Partridge territory. Um, Yes. Anyway, she, get back to the track. Yeah, you know, she she she's absolute dynamite for anybody wanting to sell product. You know, she only has to walk down. So her her sponsorship of um, is it Littlewoods, the, yeah. the the catalog retailer. Um, she is an, an amazingly valuable asset uh, and and drives retail sales. So I think interestingly, sociologically, there are um, big challenges where they're not so open and honest about it. So where you have the Kardashians of the world sponsoring product without actually admitting to doing as much. Well, they've been stopped now. Uh, I think uh, the online advertising agency has said if you are 
fundamentally being paid to promote product you now have to declare you have it. to absolutely yeah. and which mm-hmm. is right and um but but i think okay let's 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 unpack all of this go back a little bit because we've had a lovely long journey um so we've gone from the early days of shops being awful customer experience through to online challenging them we've gone through to there's begin the beginnings of sort of what i'd call attention-based marketing yes you know stunts as we talked about spending lots of money creating stupid videos or brand marketing actually to create brand awareness yeah so one of the things I was interested in in, in in asking you, Jane, was about you know the difference between conversion marketing, where you're, you've implemented these analytics, and then creating really interesting, engaging, fun experiences where individuals go into store, and you maybe don't get any data from them, but they're just enjoying some kind of retail theatre or some kind of experience. Virtual reality, for example, is is, is one uh, is one way of doing that. So, what are your thoughts on that, as as opposed to? as opposed to sort of the analytical side, but actually the brand building and creating a fun experience? I, d- I don't see such a, a stark contrast between the two. I don't see, um, you know, it being either or. If you look at uh, uh, businesses like Virgin Holidays, for example, totally online, um, they now have an experience store in Cardiff where you can go in and experiment with um, virtual reality. You can, you know, take a virtual trip across the Caribbean. You can experience the inside of an airline cabin. Um, but that's still very focused on getting you to buy a holiday, you know, to convert. Uh, the, I don't think the clear distinction between the two any longer exists. It's not just about getting anybody to buy something and anybody to, ex- you know, to just love the brand. The two connected i think i was gonna say yeah. that that comes back to what tara hunt was saying you know creating just the experience or creating attention by creating noise or creating a stunt or creating some sort of emotion without any data without any follow-up and it, where it's not measurable i think is basically what we have to come away from which is what experiential marketing is taking yes. us away from because you know as i said when i was at netscape we would just create stunts because we knew that, you know, the old expression, all PR is good PR, was what we thought. You know, we could just create noise. But we had no idea who was listening to our noise. We had no way of measuring the effect of our marketing, you know. And so we ended up spending money for the sake of just hoping it, that it would work. But today, with the technology that's available, we can measure it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and things have changed as well with social media. So with this sort of brand building and this experiential marketing and this you know in-store theater and entertainment you you're not only thinking about converting that individual into a buyer what you're thinking about is who they are talking to Mm. and what do we have now that we didn't have before social media so this person that's that's sort of you know looking through a vr um vr goggles into um top shops um catwalk and watching the trends the, the latest trends coming out they're tweeting messaging to their friends so that's building a buzz so that's extra marketing that you can actually measure um but also there's that sort of brand building and um, brand awareness and of course you know potentially those people becoming ambassadors so you're you're maybe choosing people as well and carefully selecting people so i wonder what you thought about that as well and, and the social media aspect of this experiential marketing and in store so as well as online <clears throat> Um, I think it's it, it's a very interesting one. Um, I've worked um, 
you know, with with Burberry, who are masters of it. So their um, catwalks have always been uh, in, incredible shows, um, which have been put out on um, Snapchat Live, you know, um, um, Facebook, etc. They've always been able to use those mediums, but there's never been a direct connection to the sales uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think where you've got, uh, again, I'll go back to the glossier example, where the people are actually talking about the content itself and and using that as um, to connect with um, and talk about the product. I think that there's where you've got marketing content and you've got word of mouth marketing that buzz marketing there's place for both um my focus is much more on where you can you can see those measurable results yeah i mean a friend of mine warren is about to launch a company which is brilliant what kind of company it's a fashion company um I'm, i'm helping him a little bit um and he's doing something that I think's really smart because what he's done, he knows the fashion industry inside out. And so what he's worked out is that he can get the season coming uh, clothes before they hit the retail store. That's um, a challenge to do that. No, no, it's not. I thought it was. But he, because he's been a buyer for lots of top companies, they have, they have trade shows where all these clothes are pre-made, samples of. And so he knows he can have photos ready because they've got them all ready. He knows he can get actual physical samples. So he's building a business where the people who are invited to this social media site that he's building can only come in if they've got a certain number of followers. So what he's doing is looking for influencers who are high rated already Mm -hmm. and then giving them even more sort of exclusive access he's, he's like you know it's the opposite of the marx brothers club you know you know i won't join this club if ever, you know if they allow me to join it in this case it's he's saying to you know you might say to you deborah okay you can join unfortunately jane you don't have enough followers so you can't it's i like, definitely don't have enough followers. <laughs> no <laughs> and if it's fashion i don't at all um but but the whole idea is he's made he's turned social media on his head so he's got access to stuff unique content i guess mm-hmm. that people want and these fashion influencers are begging him to let them in and he's going no sorry you're not good enough to come in yet and ones and twosies are coming in and he's keeping it very restricted and then they get access to the photos and the stock and the items early so he'll send them out um next season's clothes so he's working on behalf of the the retailer or the uh, the fashion labels yeah so what happens is you know they'll get next season's jacket or skirt or top because they've got the samples ready they'll be ready to take photos they go straight out oh look at me i'm a super influencer and here i am in next season's clothes already and uh, all their followers go how'd you get this stuff how'd you get this stuff oh well i'm on this secret site you know and they tell it can we come in can we come in no get more followers you know and see well that's an inspiration isn't it Oh no, it's brilliant because what what they've <laughs> motivation done is, yeah what they've done is they've got these very loyal uh, advocates who want the the ammunition from you know being able to wear next season's clothes before anyone else and and they stay loyal and I guess what I'm coming back round to is what Jane and you are saying is that it, I guess we've gone away from attention just creating noise to measurable actionable sales but but fundamentally i think and and tara said it beautifully in this video again i I keep going back to it when she said if you take that one dollar that you spend on attention and if you turn off the attention tap 
will that one dollar still keep resonating will those people who are loyal to your brand still keep talking about it still keep coming back for you or will that one dollar switch off and will those customers go elsewhere and the key is you have to keep nurturing those relationships yeah. Well, I think one of the um, um, one of the interesting trends um, on you know habit nurturing that ongoing community is investments in community. So if you look at some of the things that Nike are doing, so Nike by you in the US um, opening up stores which are. Um, which are utilising the likes and experiences of their customers. So it's using the data from the Nike app, if you use that for training. But it's also customising product in the store. But it's it's based around a community of users of the brand. And I think that's where lots of retailers have the opportunity to use that dollar and keep it rolling. Um, if you look at brands, uh, I think it's particularly powerful in the fitness arena. So you've got brands like Peloton, which who are very big in the US and are coming over here, um, selling a bike. Um, but more importantly, you can join a spin class online and then those uh, those classes become personalised based on your biometric data, the feedback data from your, from your watch. Um, and you can have leaderboards, which then um, you know you can you can train yep. against your um, friends. Um, but then it becomes rather more about the content and the community rather than the original bike that you bought. So I think yeah. it's it's that community based selling, which is um, the way in which lots of retailers keep that power that dollar rolling. Yeah, and that <clears throat> I think that's a critical thing. I mean Harley Davidson got it years and years oh, ago absolutely. as a brand you that's know. a fantastic brand oh well you know you, you buy a Harley and, and it's like you know it's the boy toy I mean it's, it's a girl's toy as well <laughs> is it yeah it can't be sexist you know I can oh, really <laughs> that's a cool them. kit I, I'm old enough I'm too young I'm, t- I'm not anymore now I'm only joking I mean how many women really drive Harleys as a percentage I don't know the figures exactly. if I Nor could drive I. a motorcycle I would probably drive a Harley though a friend of mine Steph who was on here last week absolutely blew everyone in Microsoft apart she came in one day dressed as Emma Peel full leathers on and she had a Kawasaki 750 and every bloke in the room went oh my god uh, so yes yeah, <laughs> it's possible but no okay without being sexist I think Harley is generally the the, the boy toy that you know the the, the 40 year old life uh, crisis is either the Porsche or the Harley um, or, or, or a young which one blonde. would you go for oh I can't ride a bike as in ride a motorbike so I'd go Porsche but uh, yeah um, but but okay so I think we've really come to a little bit of a, an understanding of what experiential marketing is so what I want to look at is any other examples that are good so you've got a whole list that you were giving me Jane so we were talking about we've done a little bit about Zara using augmented reality this week, an interesting one I noticed was McDonald's. Yes, absolutely. They've the, bought a personalisation company, yeah, Dynamic called, Yield. Yeah, for three hundred million. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Why? So, um, actually, I've, I've talked to quite a few uh, um, food food outlet um, type retailers um, about personalisation, and I think it's a really bold move by them. So, uh, it's not it's not somewhere where I tend to buy food myself but you know with the kids you go up you, t- you touch those great big screens um being able to personalize the offer according to your likes dislikes um is is going to be really powerful mm-hmm. so it's being able to 
present an, an offer to you based on the things that you've purchased before and introducing you to new product that you might also like. So um, I think a great example of, of that as well is uh, TGI Friday have been doing this for quite a long time. So the fact that you can book a table via an app, um, it knows who you are and what you've purchased. Now, for um, the you know, TGI Friday, it's a great way of them being able to nudge you into a spend. So you're there on a Friday, um, they can look at the data and see... That's fundamentally, that, isn't it? Is yeah. nudging, is better Yeah, absolutely. Marketing. So being able to say, you know, if we, if we offer you, you know, your kids a, an extra free Coke, you're likely to go for the, you know, the um, happy hour cocktail margarita and stay here for a bit longer and spend more money. Well, I, I would anyway. Personalisation and personal offers has been around for years particularly in the e-commerce industry where is how do you see that changing and evolving and you know what what new new ideas or i think um so quite quite a few distinct changes so um you know when, when uh, i i worked on things like um helping marks and spencers um, when they replatformed implement personalization on the website some of the key ways in which it operated in the past was um algorithms that ran very much just on online behaviour and over very short periods of time. So um, 120 days, usually the standard. Now, if you think about how frequently most of us shop, actually there's some people who may shop from McDonald's on a, on a fairly frequent basis, but, you know, we, we wouldn't... What take... are you saying about me? <laughs> <laughs> we... When did you look at me and go fat? Unless it... <laughs> Unless it's fast food. Most of us don't tend to shop that often from, from a business. And we'll all be familiar with the bad old days of, you know, having bought a product and then it following you all around the web. The retargeting. Or, yeah, the yeah. retargeting. Or even saying, you know, because you bought a book for, for your child, for example, um, you know, about monsters. Oh, you know, now you're interested in all books about monsters here. Like, yeah. the, the algorithms were either very short-working they only worked on on um, online behaviour, and they were a pretty you know people liked this, then also like that, quite quite generic and not tuned into the individual because you know f for example my. Uh, if you take myself, I've got two kids. You know, just because I buy something for my my children doesn't mean that I have any interest in buying it for myself. Also, it, what it cannot, could never do, is as encompass aspirational um, marketing as well. So the fact that I might um, buy products in a particular price range doesn't mean that I don't aspire to, you know, buy a, a very expensive handbag, for example. Um, so, but it was working off of much smaller data sets and, and um, from, from only one silo of data. The change now is, um, A, we're able to connect up data sources, we're be able to connect up app data with online behavioural data, with marketing response data, with purchase data, with social data, with likes, dislikes. Um, and also we're able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to, do, to handle much bigger data sets. Yeah, I mean... On the positive side, I love all of that. I, I, I'm like, great, bring it all together, analyse it and give me what I want, you know, target me 
so that I'm not getting rubbish ads, but target me so I'm getting ads. I don't mind ads if they are relevant and specific to my personal. The, the worry that we've got is in the US recently, an insurance company now was given permission in New York State to look at social media. So now, as a car insurance company, they were looking at, you know, yeah. Had you got a parking ticket? Have you? What's your credit rating like? Because have you paid back on the cards? What was your finance like? So they've, they've they've had that for a while, but now they're allowed to add social media data to that, and suddenly they're going, oh, you know what? Sam was out on Friday night drinking with his mates. We can see that. Mm, not sure he's the right sort of person. So. It, it can be used if connected all together in quite a worrying way as well. It can. Um, I, I think actually there's a there's a far more fundamental issue. So it's not even it's not just been used for insurance, um, artificial intelligence. It's being used for making policing decisions in the US, and that's been brought into question. So if you look at um, the allocation of, of scarce policing resources in the US is being used um, in order to uh, place police officers. It's being used for insurance. Now, there, there is a there is and will be a growing industry in auditing the outcomes of, of artificial intelligence because the people that program the the algorithms, just like you and I, they have their, their own bias. hidden preju- yeah, prejudices yeah. And, and bias. And we're seeing the outcome of those decisions that AI led reflecting those underlying prejudices. So you see people of colour um, or of particular um, gender identity Entities receiving higher insurance quotes, being treated differently. And this is being led by a dumb algorithm. The trouble is, algorithms are so complex and the data sets they work on so so vast, if you took any one result and asked the pe- person that originally coded it to trace back to how they got to that answer, they wouldn't be able to tell you. So there is now a rise in auditing AI-based outcomes. And I think we'll see that particularly in the public sphere, um, the public service services sphere a huge amount more because it's we need to make sure um, the outcomes are fair and valid less so in retail but if you think about you know if if you get a voucher for 50 quid and i don't get a voucher up for 50 quid off and the two of us are stood in the queue in waitrose i'm i'm not going to think so well of that john lewis partnership brand if i can't figure out why the hell you you got a 50 quid voucher off and i didn't so there are real-world consequences, even for retailers in this. Okay, well, we're fast approaching the news, those pesky guys at Sky. Um, when we come back, we're going to look a lot more at AI, look more at VR, AR, and look at more examples, I think, of what's going on in the experiential world. To ask Sam a technology question or give him feedback, please join our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology, and leave a comment. Don't forget to tell your friends.
enjoy that? I did very much. There you go. But we've got so much to talk about I don't want to just do the music. So bye bye Elbow. We'll come back to them another day. Right, we were talking about, I suppose the whole show really is about experiential marketing and that being the current I suppose phase of e-commerce and where we are. We've we've evolved from the early days of e-commerce offline and online uh, through to just grabbing a bit of attention here and there through chucking stuff out, through to now measuring it, being able to market, to create brand val- value, great loyalty. Um, and we were just beginning to touch on the fact that the next stage of all of this really is um, uh, personalization was where we were, we were leaving it. We started touching on the idea of AI and machine learning <laughs> to try and help personalize it better Uh, and one of the dangers we've got is garbage in garbage out of data because machine learning only can work off the data set it's working on it's not a a miracle maker um you know it doesn't have what we call general ai the ability to think for itself uh this is normalized ai so it's very narrow um so and we were touching on the bias you know it's white male bro culture generally who are making this you know who's making the ai but um AI is going to be, uh, or machine learning, is going to be the next generation of where we go with this. Um, taking all that data that we're creating today from the experiential marketing, sucking that into the data set and analysing it. Where do you see it going next, though? I mean, what what is the future of, I guess, retail? Where, where does it go next? So I think there's some, some great examples here. I think um, predictive marketing is, is the next step to step for this because what um, AI and machine learning enables marketers to do is to look at patterns of behaviour on very big data sets so whereas personalisation ran a few algorithms on 120 days worth of data and identified people who bought you know this this product with that product um, will are likely to buy that, 
another product um those days are gone so it fell down when you had very popular products which people always bought so if you think about um you know come christmas time people were throwing the in the gift wrap in in their um shopping basket alongside you know the presents that they're buying it would come up as a gift wrap as as something to 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 understand it to offer with everything so there, there were pretty dumb algorithms which he then had to well, manually the dumbest force of all was the music ones where my kids were playing grunge <laughs> and house and then it was offering me stormzy and something else as my next album to absolutely buy a book on knitting from amazon for your grandmother so i think yes um, <laughs> i mean we're, we're part of part of the problem with those algorithms is what it what it didn't understand is either the context within which you were day, buying it so you're buying it for your daughter um or as a present um and it didn't so it didn't understand context and it didn't understand uh, any of the drivers behind it so um in uh, interestingly search and merchandising um, practices have always been able to uh, have focused on the reasons why you buy a lot more so um, understanding that when you look at your selection on a website and you're refining it are you price sensitive or attribute sensitive first of all so you know is the primary thing for you that you want to buy a 55 inch tv or does it have to be made by a particular brand or does it need particular attributes you know does it need to connect to other things the more the more focused you are on the the those other attributes of a 55 inch tv are quite good indicators about what it is that's making what's driving you to buy so for example if i'm buying um you know an outfit for for uh, an event going to Henley regatta or something you know the fact that i'm looking you know am i looking for something that just happens to be in my size um or am i looking for a particular color or a particular style that data about the product is a very good indicator of why we're trying to buy something and increasingly personalization is about picking up that metadata about the purchase uh, and the drivers behind it you know did I look at a social recommendation beforehand? You know, was it five minutes before the event that I had to go to? Was I, you know, posting on on Facebook? Oh, you know, rats! I'm. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've got to go to this inf- in, event, and I've dropped coffee down myself. Oh, what the hell? What on earth do I do now? Um, you know, what's what's the drive of the context? What's my choice selections? So again, coming back to the um, Amazon example. You know, if you choose, you know, if you targeted people who only ever wanted the product now and now, there and then, the, that you can take, make a pretty good assumption that they are price insensitive and, and you know, they are, you know, they want an immediate response. They, they want something that excites the senses and you can sell them quite a few things. And it's all that metadata that personalization is now picking up on, yeah. which then means it's predictive. You can then predict at a very early point what it is that somebody's going to want to buy. And there's a lot of businesses, particularly in the travel industry, that are using that predictive intent data to target products. Um, in the US, there's um, HomeAway, 
who are, have been using predictive marketing to target holidays at the very earliest stages. So your average consumer, when they go to purchase a, a, a holiday, you'll look at 27 different sites. You'll take quite a long time. You'll look at huge numbers of combinations of um, destinations, routes, you know. But there'll be some commonalities. Are you looking for your family? Are you looking just as a couple? Do you want a city break? Do you want a long break? So... It can start if you you'll normally start your search path um, with some common factors, and it's picking up those <coughs> indicators in the data to understand what you're after, and that's what marketers will be using personalization for. There's a very early indicators to hone in, but it does rely very heavily on artificial intelligence in in order to understand. <coughs> what the next parts of those path is and to trigger a, a message and the content out the person which really is a a big leap for most marketers it means that they have to let go very much of of deciding what it is that their consumers are going to get and i think the Sorry, biggest step what do you mean by that so uh in you know traditionally uh Putting together a marketing campaign meant, you know, draft, you know, an analyst would decide which segment of, of customers a campaign would go to. The the um, director of marketing would say, you know, here's the concept for this campaign. Um, you know, a marketing executive would draw it up and they'd proof it and somebody else would approve it and they'd decide all the products that go in. And this is a process that would traditionally take four or five days and involve five people. We're now looking at machines deciding who gets a campaign and what goes in it and when. And, th and this is an automated process. So it's... You Goodbye, marketeers. Well, th I think there's always going to be the room for creative. So spending that time far more in the experiential sphere and really focusing on what makes the customer happy. What makes them tick, yeah. Yeah, what makes them tick. And letting the machine say, oh, did you, do you know that we've got a deal, the price has just dropped on a flight to Barbados, you know, how about you and the kids, you know, book it now? So it, it's getting more personalised, more contextual, that will allow you to make offers. Because the rumour, and I can't, I can't say it's true or not, but the rumours are around insurance companies having differential pricing and certainly Amazon having differential pricing based on your previous number of purchases. Strangely, it doesn't base it on the fact that you've been buying more from them. It bases on what it perceives as your uh, expandable value. So can you afford to pay more? And, and the way to test that is to go in your browser as you as a logged in and then go as a... Um, incognito mode on your browser yep. and then do it again and you'll see a different price I and mean, not always but on certain products it certainly does um okay so we've gone we've gone okay so we've gone from the i didn't know who you were customer to you know you've walked in this store i have no, no idea no, who you're you inside leg like, measurements yeah that was about it and <laughs> i saw you last week doris yeah, yeah. um to online where fundamentally the old joke you could have been a dog on a laptop ordering something do you remember that there was a famous cartoon you know they don't know i'm a dog um <laughs> and, and typing away to we started to get a little bit more understanding of who it was through cookies and other things then we had poor retargeting then we've got better at it now we've got into the point of experiential marketing now we've got personalization better coming at us um ai's going to make that even better we're talking about context now bringing all of those other data points together trying to build a bigger picture of who we are i guess um 
And then finally, I guess we're, we're moving into the next generation I want to talk about now is voice-enabled commerce. Uh, you know, we've... <clears throat> Deborah, do you have a, a, a an Amazon Alexa or, or Google Home or a voice assistant at home? I don't use them. Why? Mad. Personal preference. No. They, they are not listening. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Uh, oh. Everything in my house is connected. I know. We, my we, diary, which which then means that my diary is filled up with endless rude things, which my, <laughs> <laughs> which my kids find have... It just I walk into the house and I see them laughing as soon as I step in the door and I know that they've just filled my diary <laughs> with the most ridiculous rubbish you oh. can possibly think of. <laughs> and I, I, I won't repeat some of the things Please. they put in there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, every, everything in my house is connected. I love being yeah. cooking and realising I've run out of something and I just order it there and then. Absolutely. And I think... It's fantastic. I mean, I've got six Alexas in the house. Seven, potentially. Depends uh, if you call the one in the car in the house. Um, <laughs> it's not quite, but it, I have a seventh. And um, like you, with the shopping thing, what I'm looking at is I, I want to be able to go, oh, I've just run out of whatever... Uh, Madam A, I better not trigger it on anyone's uh, Alexa. <laughs> Madam A, order me some, I don't know, chicken or, or paprika or whatever it may be. Yeah. At the moment, it doesn't fulfil that order, which is a bit frustrating because what I'd like it to do next is, okay, send my order to Amazon or Ocado have got a, a, an Alexa skill, you know, deliver what's on my shopping list. And that would be great because that's the next... F- stage of it but they haven't got there yet but what about iot then internet of things where so for example you've you've got something in the fridge and you've run out of it so consumables that you regularly use yeah and that automatically triggers off to your favorite and orders your milk and there there are those um that will come but if you if you look at all of the home meals um you know so you on the one hand you've got um internet enabled uh fridges and freezers where you can scan things and it will tell you the lifetime not many people not many people but but lots of people do do have and um, I'm a great fan of them as a as a as a busy working mother. Um, the um, subscription services for meals, where you have all yep. of the ingredients in one go, and those you can do online. Just, you know, I used to spend a Sunday morning planning out all the meals for the week ahead, so that I can, you know, run in the door, get food on the table within half an hour, and then get out again to 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 go after something else. Um, you know, having having that, you know, a healthy all of the ingredients in one place it takes me five seconds to pick I'll have those meals those meals and it's fresh it's good food yeah um that that's a game changer for us as a family yeah I mean that that that's taking I, I guess uh time which is what you have a lack of mm. and, and giving you uh, all the ingredients that you need, but going back to voice commerce, which is really what I want to focus on. Well, that's what that, but that for me is the connection. So, voice okay. commerce for me is that saving time. Okay, so so with voice commerce today, um, it, well, forget the commerce element. Voice search now, they reckon, is about twenty percent of searches now are coming through voice-enabled devices. So, not just the the smart assistants on you know the Alexas and the Google Homes, but Google Assistant, for example, is on every Android phone now. Siri, uh, Bixby, I mean, you know, that's probably got nobody asking for that. But but 
you're beginning to see people were getting more comfortable with you know asking using voice as a mechanism the you know the airpod 2 that just came out you know the earphones have got siri built into it now that's because voice recognition has significantly um improved over the years apart from when i phone up my telephone company (laughs) and then it just doesn't understand a bloody word i say but other than that you're right voice has, has got much better but but we're at that point now where voice is um good enough as you say for us to trust it we are i guess with the home assistants the voice assistants at the point where mobile phones were 10 years ago you know it's super super early i mean 10 years from now what will voice look like god knows but what i have found really interesting is uh, and this is just an experiment that i saw um i i might order batteries from my alexa and Amazon now is becoming really clever. They're not offering me the branded battery. They're offering me their own basics. So they will go, oh, do you want some batteries? Well, the number one brand is Duracell. But Profit margin is higher. Say again? Profit margin is higher. Yeah. But but what they do is they, they offer me Amazon basics as an advance. And so here's a question for you, Beth. The, the, Google's got a really big challenge on its hands now, I think. So if you did a Google search for, I don't know, a Chinese restaurant local to where you live, you get one page of search results, you get three ads at the top, you probably get six ads down the side. So Google's monetized that search query quite well. Mm-hmm. With voice, there's only one answer. There is a definitive answer. There isn't a second. You don't get, well, the first answer is, <laughs> and then you get this long list of Alexa or Google telling you, 20 other things how is somebody like google going to monetize voice and how are they going to make money out of it Uh, i don't know i mean i think i think there's still a challenge around um the level with which the natural language processing so the idiosyncrasies that are used by people i think there's still a way to go before before it becomes ubiquitous um voice search because of the way in which people construct sentences yeah yeah, and the language use is just not there yet turning on turning on the lights is not natural the way we talk about absolutely you'd be start to to constrain the way you're speaking um and that means you know you know the, the the comedy errors that you come up with if you're just even ordering batteries but i think as it becomes more sophisticated in understanding the context and the needs for which you require product then it can become more com- conversational and more of to like have you thought of this have you thought of that at which point it can introduce new ideas new concepts on or alternative products at the moment the way in which the response is returned to you is constrained by the way it can interpret what you've asked for Um, as it becomes more sophisticated and has a a truer understanding a more human-like understanding of what you've just asked then it can have a conversation and then it can introduce those other uh, opportunities yeah so i I can't talk about google so much um although i I probably could but but with amazon they've introduced three things i think are going to be big one is when you ask madam a a question she keeps the microphone open now so you don't have to then go oh and madame a next and madame a so you can have a pseudo conversation secondly uh, amazon's just announced a contextual api so in alexa you can now have a better 
context to yeah. the conversation. So they are improving the AI. So, so, so my, my answer in a nutshell to that question is we will get to the point where it says, oh, you need a 12-volt battery. What's more important to you? Is it the lifetime of the battery? Is it the price of the battery? Or, you know, have you thought about you know, having a product that doesn't even need the battery and it will become more conversational but yeah. at the moment it just doesn't have that level of sophistication no. and I think that's where I said you know we're at the beginning of the AI s- assistant There's, and the whole model for advertising would change probably would have to well I've got I've got an answer to that one actually in a second but, um, <laughs> but, but I think what we'll see is at the moment when you do a voice search or a voice query it has to fire it back over the internet back up to the Amazon services, turn it around and bring it back down. That's pretty quick in what it does already, but there is lag because of sending it over the internet. And the volume of products that they may have, the volume of options. I think if you're doing that through Google search, then you have not just one website that you might be pulling um, offers from, but multiple, multiple websites. So really voice, uh, as, as we see it at the moment, is not really a viable option for um for searching for products oh, unless not 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 as it is at the moment not at the moment in the fa- in the stage that, that we're at but it doesn't mean that we couldn't be if individuals um have say for example select sites sites that are websites that they regularly use that they're brand loyal to and then maybe you're pulling off specific websites that you use on a regular basis maybe but i think you know but it has to progress somewhat massively i think with and data is with the legal changes so obviously google has already been uh, fined for promoting their own home shopping service um it they will amazon will be soon i'm pretty sure they will have to differentiate between the public service elements of search and and what they do in terms of making profit from from selling slots so i i can see a day where um it'll be you have a general search mechanism and you go through that where you have a shopping mechanism and it's you know dedicated to one thing because what will happen is you know you'll say i want some batteries please and it'll say you know the the natural response is you know what do you what matters to you mm. is it is it the price the the it's about brand that's yeah, what they do price brand battery life um and then that, and it'll say, do you, want, do you want us to keep that data to optimise your search listings in future? And then it'll become learn. What, what Google, when we forget, what Google does is sell that search data to those that are selling adverts on it. So it's not even necessarily it's making the, the money from selling the product, it's making the money from selling the data about how shoppers search. That's that. Google. I agree with you. Google is about answering the contextual question you know i want a chinese restaurant but they I, sell that data on to people and say did you know that there's there's 50,000 people in marlow and the uh, surrounding region who who on a friday night ask for the local chinese do you want to be in on that act? And, and it's selling that data to the buyers to to the retailers or to the chinese and that's where they're putting keywords that has that's how they price keywording as well exactly but but again we're going to run out of time pretty quickly but on voice to answer your question deborah what is going to happen is keywords are going to become the triggers on voice so if i say i want to book a table tonight right it doesn't say where well booking a table will become a word that as a marketeer i'll be able to buy so i'll go to amazon and say right um, I don't want to. So at the moment, the way it works is I have to go and load a skill, a plugin, in effect, for OpenTable. And then my Alexa becomes more intelligent because it's got that skill added. 
but that's a crazy way of doing it because I don't know what skills I need to yeah, and it's currently already. So now what they're doing is they're switching the model. They're saying, actually, we will load the skill based on the context of your conversation or your requirement. So that's great. But how do I know which skill is going to be loaded? Is it open table or just eat? Yes. You which have one to gets loaded it. first? And now what's going to happen is just eat and open table are going to compete for the keyword booking. Yeah, or Click Local, which or is a new local. one coming yeah. up, which is a merger of a number of different apps. So watch out for that one, folks. Okay. Click Local. I'll have a look for that one. But whatever it is, they're going to have to compete for that word. And when they get that word, then they can start to sell. Anyway, I'm going to have to say we've run out of time. Oh, my God, we could ah. talk for ages. But wow. Thanks ever so much, Sam. Really enjoyed it. I'm glad you did. Thank you for coming in today. Jane Dixon, what's the name of your company? Willow Ridge Digital. And if people would like to go to the website, wr.digital. Um, we've just launched the website today, so please forgive us if it's a bit uh, tatty at the edges still. Um, but if you'd like to sign up, we'll send you lots more information on loyalty, CRM, and on all the good things that we've been talking about today. And Deborah, thank you for being my co-host today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.